This is a podcast from the June 17, 2008 meeting of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. The podcast is from the second session on NCAA infractions, an examination of trends, recommendations to restructure penalties, and challenges. During this session, the Commission and the panelists discussed the membership's expectations for penalties, for major rules violations, and the principles that should drive any changes. The Commission and panelists also discussed whether the new academic performance program and its penalty schedule have had any impact on the number and nature of academic fraud cases. This podcast runs approximately one hour and two minutes. For more information on the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, visit www.knightcommission.org. This session is on uh, reviewing uh, sort of the NCAA infractions standards. It's the examination of the trends and uh, recommendations and considerations about uh, penalties and the challenges of looking at those. And, uh, and we've got a very good uh, panel that will uh, kind of bring us up to date on these areas. Uh, as Amy mentioned, the review here is not the investigation process. Uh, what we're looking at here is actually the penalty structure that exists within the NCAA. Uh, in 93, 94, um, there were a group of us that were asked to review the penalty structure, and there were some small changes made at that time. Uh, uh, the idea of presumptive penalties were sort of brought in. Uh, some other changes made, but uh, none of them particularly significant. Uh, questions have arisen. Uh, in the meantime, over these uh, last uh, nearly 15 years, as to uh, whether or not uh, the, the whole penalty process is, brings about what uh, the goal of it is within the membership, and that is to uh, discourage uh, institutions from uh, having within their programs individuals that would uh, violate the standards of uh, the association. And uh, uh, if it occurs, for there to be some effect of that. And so uh, we're very pleased that uh, to have the individuals with us today that uh, uh, work with the Committee on Infractions, at least uh, three do. And uh, they're examining the effectiveness of the current penalty structure and whether changes need to be made, and uh, just to have a conversation that uh, really talks about uh, the penalty structure within the NCAA to sort of shine a bright light on it uh, and the issues that are involved, we appreciate very much your being with us. Uh, I'll introduce our panelists, and uh, uh, then we'll have uh, presentations from each of them, as we did before, and then uh, open uh, it up for questions from uh, the Commission members. First is uh, Joe uh, Petuto is the Richard H. Larson Professor of Constitutional Law at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, and she has served as the university's faculty athletic representative since 97. She's the current chair of the NCAA Committee on Infractions and has served as a member since 1998. Um, you need a medal for that. She's an expert on issues related to gender equity and intercollegiate athletics and on NCAA enforcement and infractions uh, processes, and uh, has been a member of the bar of the U.S. Supreme Court, the U.S. Court of Appeals, and so on, and uh, has appeared before the House Subcommittee uh, regarding issues in NCA infractions hearings. Uh, 
Uh, Chad uh, McAvoy is assistant professor of this, in the School of Kinesiology and Recreation and the coordinator of the sports management program at Illinois State University. He's also a member of the university's athletic council. And he conducts research on revenue production in collegiate and professional sports. And his most recent research is evaluating the effectiveness of major infraction penalties in NCAA Division I athletics. So obviously a pertinent research area for our conversation. Mike Glazier is the uh, founder of Bond, Shonick and King uh, Collegiate Sports Practice Group. Uh, he's the lead attorney for the group and he concentrates his practice on the representation of colleges, universities, athletic conferences and associations and individuals in NCAA infractions, eligibility and compliance related matters. Before joining the firm, he co-founded Slive Glazier Sports Group, the first sports law practice concentrating exclusively on the representation of colleges and universities in NCAA-related matters. And previously, he served seven years on the NCAA staff, where his primary responsibilities involved infractions, compliance, and legislative matters. So glad to have you with us. And then Gene Marsh. Gene is the James M. Kidd Senior Professor of Law at the University of Alabama a past chair and current member of the Committee on Infractions. Uh, Gene has served on the committee since 1999. He's also served as, as Alabama's faculty rep from 96 to 2003, and he teaches courses in the School of Law on consumer protection contracts, patents, and business organizations. And so we're very pleased to have all of you with us. Uh, we appreciate your time. And uh, Joe, why don't we just start with you, and we'll just go straight down the line. Thank you, President Turner. Uh, I would like very much to thank uh, the Knight Foundation for uh, putting the panel together to look at issues with regard to the effectiveness of penalties in the infractions process, and in particular for inviting me to participate. Every infractions case has two prime and overriding interests that the committee is concerned with. One of them is to be fair and to be perceived to be fair to the institution and the individuals who may be appearing before the committee alleged to have committed major NCAA violations. But the other interest is to assure that, the, that we are doing our best to maintain a quote-unquote competitive playing field. Uh, and reflecting the interests of all the member institutions and coaches and others who are not before the committee uh, to uh, correct and more than correct any advantage, whether competitive or otherwise, that was gained or sought to be gained by the commission of the violations. The school in the box uh, sees, and I think rightly so, all the things it has done to try to avoid violations. It may have a great compliance system. Uh, it may have a coach who was operating or a booster who was operating below the radar screen and the institution was not in a position to catch it any earlier than maybe it was caught. Uh, it's cooperated in the investigation and by the time the case comes to the Committee on Infractions, usually the staff, well always, the staff members who have been complicit in major violations are gone, so there are new staff who have not committed violations, and often there are student athletes who are not there when the violations were committed. Uh, the school then uh, feels, and from their perspective, again, I think rightly so, 
uh, that they've taken some significant action and all of that should mitigate any penalties. All the other schools say, not enough, not enough, not enough, because you had an advantage over the time that you were doing this that needs to be corrected and more than corrected. Otherwise, we have been placed at a disadvantage by being rules compliant and there's not a, good, there's not a significant deterrent effect going forward. Uh, clearly, those two interests are uh, not always, to put it mildly, uh, consistent one to the other. The committee, uh, I think juggling act may be a bad way to describe it. There are a lot of interests that are in play. Uh, penalties need to fit the seriousness of the of the of the violation and reflect the circumstances in which the violation was committed. Penalties need to be significant enough to deter conduct and also to uh, provide support for those compliance directors and others on campuses who have the not uh, easy task of assuring or attempting to assure that their, uh, their staff members and others are playing by the rules. Uh, for schools that are on probation or are repeat violators, the penalties need to be more serious than they would be for a school that hasn't been before the committee or 10 or 15 years. Uh, the penalties need to be greater than those that are imposed by staff in secondary cases, and the penalties need to be in line with penalties that are being imposed by other NCAA committees, such as CAP or student athlete reinstatement or gambling amateur, I never know the way those, you know, it's gambling amateurism and something else, you know, that group. Um, I think there are some uh, areas that I would say where there are, if not major misunderstandings, but uh, maybe not a complete enough understanding of the way the process works. I would say the number one is the institution that says, hey look, it was the coach. We had no idea he was doing it. We had a compliance system in place that was adequate, reasonably constituted to detect violations and we didn't detect it. And what's missing from that is institutions only can act through individuals. The last time I checked, even at the University of Nebraska, the university doesn't teach a class or coach a game. And so the university has to be responsible for the acts of those who uh, do things on their behalf or in their name. However much the university would say, this is not the kind of conduct I want. Um, in addition, uh, the Committee on Infractions has a prescribed jurisdiction and it's typically major infractions and it's infractions for which the university is responsible. The Committee on Infractions does not do student-athlete reinstatement. That committee has different staff, well, different members, different staff, a different charge. Um, so that another thing that we hear before the committee is how can this be a big case and how can there have been a competitive advantage if all our student athletes who were involved were reinstated after a one game suspension. Well the fact is there are lots of different reasons why that could occur. One might be that none of the student athletes knew or had reason to know that they were committing a violation but somebody at the school certainly did. Another might be that they did know but you've got eight student athletes, all of whom may have taken, let's say, $300 from a coach, 
their individual responsibility may be limited, but the university's got a total of eight that has been engaged in rules violative behavior. Uh, the university will say it fully cooperated in the investigation, and that may well be true. Uh, but the fact is, there was an advantage gained by the violations and the cooperation afterwards doesn't remedy the advantage that was gained by the violations. And as I said when I started, the committee has to be cognizant of the fact that that advantage that's gained has to be accommodated in the penalties. Otherwise, uh, we will either not this, we may end up encouraging, but we're certainly not going to discourage somebody out there who engages in a, a cost-benefit calculus. You know, if I do these things, I may not get caught, and if I get caught, here's what the penalty will be, and on balance, the advantage I'm going to get by doing it overrides what might turn out to be a penalty later. Uh, the uh, committee is now looking, and I think members of this foundation uh, know this, is now has, has been engaged in a process of looking at penalties to see if we are um, uh, imposing penalties according to the principles that I outlined at the start as to what we should be doing with penalties. Uh, and uh, for example, if CAP is, is imposing a 5 or a 10% scholarship reduction for a team that does not meet uh, satisfactory academic performance, I think the committee would say uh, if the team cheated in order to attain satisfactory academic performance, that the penalty that the committee would impose for that has to be at least as serious as what CAP would do for the failure to meet the academic standards in the first place. One area that I think Speaking for myself, because this is a, the, the review of these penalties is in process right now, uh, and virtually everything we're looking at, what we've done is put the bylaw, penalty bylaws on the table, and we're looking at them. So everything is in play that's in the bylaws with regard to penalties. The committee does not act to impose its own view on member institutions as to what should be violations or how penalties should be imposed. We serve at the will of the membership. And so to the extent that we are considering more serious penalties because uh, we may come to a conclusion that we are not adequately assessing the magnitude of the violation and we're not in line with other committees, uh, we still think that it's appropriate to let either the board of directors or the appropriate governing groups take a look and make sure that what we are now saying we're going to do consistent with bylaw authority matches what uh, the member institutions think we should be doing. So we're in process. But that said, I think, uh, speaking for myself, it looks as though the committee will be talking about getting um, uh, upping the ante on, on violations, maybe looking at new new types of uh, penalties to impose, uh, and also uh, doing a much better job of publicizing. You can't deter if people don't know what you're saying is a violation and why, and you can't deter if people don't know what the penalties are that are being assessed. And I don't think we have done, and we as the committee, we as the NCA membership, have done an adequate job in the past. CAP, for example, 
uh, publicizes those schools, the, the APR report cards of schools. And it seems to me that the committee has to be going in that direction with regard to making clear uh, what our approach is and what the penalties are that are being assessed. Okay. Uh, with that, I'm going to move to other members. Okay, okay. thank you. And uh, I'm Gene heads up. I think it would be a more logical order to have Gene come before you, Chad, so if you don't mind. Uh, Gene, let's have uh, your comments and then Chad and then Mike. And with these uh, mi microphones, I might tell you that, uh, you know, you can, they'll pick it up from the side uh, as well as uh, straight on. Uh, so if you would turn yours on and uh, All right. give us your comments. You don't have to speak directly. Into okay. I'm, I'm going to um, react to some of what I think is coming in Chad's research. I've read his work um, and, and I, um, it well, really do you want to go after Chad? Or well, I, I think it actually might might be helpful. All right, All right Chad, go ahead. I thought since from an overview it would be better for you to go first, but Chad, go ahead. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'd just like to say that I appreciate the opportunity to be with you this morning uh, and share a little bit about my research. Uh, as you might have uh, perceived from Dr. Turner's introduction, uh, this was actually a little bit astray from my normal line of research. Uh, I come from a marketing and fundraising background in, in college sports, and, and most of my research actually tends to be in, in that area, revenue generation, those types of topics. Uh, so let me take a minute just to kind of explain how, how I got here and, and what brought about this particular res research project. Uh, several years ago, I, I read a, an article on ESPN.com uh, by Tom Ferry. Uh, and Ferry was doing kind of an expose on, on penalties and so on. Um, and he, he, in one particular piece, he discussed uh, the University of Miami in Florida uh, and their uh, football success in the first part of this decade, which included a national championship, a near successful defense of that championship the following year. Uh, and, and basically the premise of this article uh, was that Miami, in a, in a strange way, actually uh, benefited from the loss of 31 scholarships in the mid to late 1990s resulting from rules violations and penalties. Uh, basically the idea was that uh, after those penalties came back, it allowed Miami to have larger recruiting classes than their competitors, and then as that, those recruiting classes moved up to upperclassmen status, that's when they actually were at sort of the peak of their success. Um, and in the article, he quoted uh, Miami Athletic Director Paul D. about the scholarship cuts. Um, and, and if I can read that, D. responded, it can pay off down the road, referring to the scholarship cuts. You have to play a lot of freshmen at first, but three years down the road, they've got a lot of experience. Uh, that's not my purpose here uh, today to discuss that particular situation at Miami. Uh, but the, the notion uh, that was put forth there really struck me uh, as, as being so counterintuitive. Uh, when we think of penalties being penal, and you know, they're kind of twisting this to say that perhaps a, a program on the rebound from the penalties in a strange way sort of benefited from those penalties. And again, very counterintuitive to me, uh, and that's really what led me to do a little bit of, of exploration on this topic. Uh, specifically, my research project uh, that I'd like to share with you examined three research questions. Uh, the first question, do penalties for major infractions lead to a subsequent decline in team performance? 
Uh, if penalties are effective in imposing a direct competitive disadvantage on penalized schools, uh, as well as in deterring others from future violations, we would expect some sort of aggregate decline in performance um, at schools that are penalized after those penalties are imposed. Secondly, is there a relationship between the severity of penalties that are imposed and the magnitude of that decreased performance? Uh, naturally, we would expect that more severe penalties would result in a greater decline in performance. And then finally, were some types of penalties more or less penal than others? Uh, if we could somehow understand the effects of, of certain types of penalties, uh, that perhaps this would aid the committee in infractions as they uh, determine the appropriate penalties to impose upon rules violators. And this is behind tab seven, if you want to follow along with the data. Very briefly, methodologically, uh, my study focused on major infractions cases in Division 1A football, uh, or what we now refer to as the football bowl subdivision, between the years, uh, schools that were penalized between the years 1987 and 2002. Uh, 1987 was chosen uh, to sort of be after the uh, landmark SMU death penalty case, um, and then 2002 was the cutoff in order to allow for five years of post-penalty uh, performance data to be uh, evaluated. Uh, this pool then consisted of 35 uh, penalized schools or subjects. Uh, my study used an expert panel that was comprised of athletic directors and uh, associate athletic directors. Um, and I asked the, the panel to categorize these uh, rules violators or subjects into three categories based on the severity of perceived penalties, uh, high severity, moderate severity, and low severity. Um, and then further, a control group of schools that were not penalized were, were randomly put together and selected for inclusion in the study. And then for each school, uh, for each of these subjects, football winning percentage data uh, was collected for a 10-year period, and I'll talk later about the use of, of winning percentage data as, as the metric in this study. Uh, but 10 years' worth of data was collected, five years prior to the penalty being imposed, and then five years after the penalty. Um, and then two advanced statistical procedures, um, a mixed design analysis of variance and a multiple linear regression model uh, were utilized to analyze the data. So most importantly, what did the results reveal? Uh, regarding the, the first research question uh, about whether uh, or not penalties imposed a direct competitive disadvantage on schools that were penalized, the results revealed that no statistically significant differences existed in penalized schools winning percentages before versus after uh, the penalties. Um, in fact, the mean winning percentage actually increased after the penalties were imposed, uh, going from 54.7% to 56.6%, a slight increase in winning percentage after penalties were imposed. Secondly, the study investigated whether more severe penalties, um, and the expert panel that I mentioned earlier uh, narrowed in their focus on, on severe penalties uh, is really including bowl and television bans. They, they, almost universally, they, they clearly 
uh, said that those were perceived as being the, the most severe forms of, of penalties. Um, the descriptive statistics revealed that schools in the high and moderate uh, penalty severity groupings uh, were slightly successful, uh, and, and I do want to highlight slightly less successful on the field after being penalized uh, than the low severity group as well as the control group of non-penalized schools. Uh, but again, statistically, we find that no statistically significant differences existed in post-penalty performance based on those penalty severity groupings. Um, and then finally, the different types of penalties, uh, ranging again from bowl and television bans to coaching restrictions as well as scholarship limitations, uh, were examined to see if some penalty types impacted performance more than others. Um, and the statistical model that was created here to evaluate this particular question, uh, once again, was also not statistically significant um, and showed no discernible statistical differences between the different types of penalties and their impact on post-penalty winning percentage. Uh, to summarize these findings, the study found that penalties imposed uh, upon institutions found to have committed major infractions in Division 1A or, or football bowl subdivision uh, football have not significantly impacted institutions' on-field performance. Uh, and again, I want to make note of the use of on-field uh, performance here because certainly penalties uh, have repercussions that go beyond simply on-field performance. Uh, we, you know, we must make note of uh, the financial uh, repercussions in, in a variety of different ways, public relations and image issues, um, and even the job security of, of coaches and administrators involved uh, may also be uh, potential repercussions of penalties. Uh, however, the results of this study suggest that penalties do not uh, or have not sufficiently placed a hardship, again as measured by on-field performance, upon rules violators. Given these findings, the, the role of penalties as a deterrent uh, must also be called into question uh, as penalties uh, are not adequately placing a competitive disadvantage upon schools uh, breaking NCAA rules. Uh, I'd like to thank the Commission for the opportunity to share this research and, and look forward to any questions or comments right. or discussion you might have. Thank you. Thank you. Gene, why don't you go now? Good morning. Um, I, I, I can't resist saying that Paul, Paul D is a member of the Committee on Infractions and that, that quote attributed to Paul about how this might turn out to be a good thing, I have never heard him say that. They may have gotten a uh, may have gotten him after half the hour, I think, to give that quote, because to hear him talk, it just flat out uh, killed him. Um, I, I question the premise that really what we do on the Committee on Infractions is hand down penalties that are designed to make schools more weaker, to make them weaker competitively in the future. Um, and and that may be a surprise to you, but I, and I know we're, you know we're generally viewed as the grim reaper in what we do, but I would say that in many of our cases, it is at least speaking for me personally, it is the mindset that I have is not to look at penalties that will weaken the school in the future uh, competitively. Joe and I are finishing uh, nine years on the Committee on Infractions. We, we started at the same time. We chaired uh, the committee each two years. 
Um, we've seen, I think, by just an informal count, over 100 cases either handled in a officially in a hearing or disposed of in the summary uh, disposition process. So that's a lot of data. It tends to be more anecdotal, but it's, uh, I would say, close to a lifetime um, experience. I'm not at all surprised by your findings, Chad, and I think I'm delighted in some ways, and, and here's a few reasons why. Many major infractions cases give the school no competitive advantage. And let me say that again. Many major infractions cases give the school no competitive advantage. And let me just give you a few examples. I've quickly thought of three. I think I could think of more. Let's say it's a case where a booster pays money to a kid to commit to the school. Um, or a university official even gets involved in academic fraud somehow involving, say, uh, at the high school level, ACT test or whatever. But then before the kid ever comes to the campus, the, the case blows up. That is, it becomes known that there's a problem and the kid never, never suits up. You have a recruitment advantage, but you don't have a competitive advantage at all. And one thing that's always so sad to see is how many schools have run themselves up on a rock in a major infractions case where the kid never played it down, or in some cases played one game and then, and then never, never played it down, didn't gain um, any meaningful advantage competitively. In a case like that, what I would look to do is to disassociate the booster. I would look to put an unethical conduct charge on any university official who had responsibility in, let's say, the academic fraud. But the school really gained nothing on the field, so I wouldn't be looking to level, say, an eye for an eye in that case. Another one could be just what I would call a bureaucracy gone bad. That is, you get cases that are major, they're an inch deep but a mile wide, like a bookstore case or a meal plan case. You get a case where the school gave a slight overage to a whole bunch of athletes across maybe a bunch of teams, um, and because it's not isolated and because it's not inadvertent, and you know, I think a lot of people misunderstand that major infractions are not just recruitment and competitive advantage. If you've got some institutional problem that's not isolated and not inadvertent, it's a major case. And, and that's certainly, I think, an ongoing misunderstanding. There's no real, you could have uh, 50 athletes who had a slight overage in a meal plan or a bookstore deal or whatever. There's no competitive advantage gain whatsoever. It's just a bureaucracy gone ban. Third case relates to something we've talked about before. Um, media, let's say the media announces a major problem that the university has and you, and, and you get a resignation of a coach, in other words, a coaching change, and then the months go by, Mike Glazier's firm might be involved in investigating it, um, and finally the case comes to the Committee on Infractions months later, but in the meantime, the coach is gone. You can have many student athletes who leave, uh, and maybe more particularly of dramatic impact in basketball than in football, but a whole lot of kids can leave which leaves you competitively disadvantaged because of the coaching change and the general tumult. We come along months later as a committee on infractions and hand down penalties. And so to try to study the, the, the I think there's a disconnect between the penalties that we might hand down and then look at the competitive disadvantage that occurred um, because frankly uh, there may be the performance of the team subsequently may have a whole lot more to do with the coaching change than any, anything that the Committee on Infractions uh, ever did. I think the Committee on Infractions penalties, which I think most, uh, my belief is that from the start, everything the NCAA does and everything that we do ought to be focused on making the institutions better, 
Uh, it is not, we shouldn't just be coming in and extracting a pound of flesh. Wally uh, Renfro said before, the idea in APR is to try to change the behavior of the institutions to try to make them better. I think the infractions process should be a whole lot about that. That is, we listen closely to corrective measures that institutions have taken and we weigh those corrective measures that institutions have taken. I think, the, I think we ought to always, I always consider, heavily consider, the impact on the student athletes. I mean, that's really what we always ought to be talking about in all of these cases. That is, when you look at penalties, um, are, you, are you leaving behind a wasteland for the students who are still going to be there or the students who might be denied an opportunity to come there? Um, are you making their life any better? Uh, if all you do is come in and you carpet bomb the school with a whole bunch of penalties and just lay waste to them in scholarships and elsewhere, um, I think you may have missed the mark because if the mark is more properly to disassociate a booster or to put an unethical conduct charge on the institutional staff members who did what they did, I don't think you ought to wipe the school out and make the school less competitive on the field in the future. I think you've just sort of confu confused, um, confused the issues. I don't think, um, I don't think, as soon as the Committee on Infractions starts to take on the notion of just sort of being a bunch of professional scolds uh, who carry around a big stick, it's not, I'm really not interested in that at all. Um, again, I go back to the idea that I think um, crippling a program competitively in the future in, is a lot of ways uh, the, wrong, the wrong way to go because so many cases uh, do not give the school a competitive advantage. Miles Brand says, he told us in a gathering, our committee, that university presidents won tougher penalties. I guarantee you, when the university presidents come in front of our committee, they don't. I mean, I, I promise you, uh, they do not at all. And uh, they, 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 they talk a big game when they're in gatherings such as this, but when they become in front of us, they are Lord have mercy. And, 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 they, and they ask for an exception. You know, they, well, that was then and this is now, uh, we've cooperated, um, et cetera. On the issue of competitive records, I would say that one of the most showy pushbacks that we get from university presidents is when we vacate the wins that they've gained by playing ineligible athletes. In other words, we have the power to say, you competed a whole slew of people who are ineligible and we're going to take those victories away from you. Well, unlike this, the, if I'm sitting in a committee hearing and predicting what might be the competitive effect of taking scholarships away, that's just like Karnak. That's predicting what we might do. But if I vacate the wins they got by playing a bunch of ineligible athletes, that's clear. I mean, and it's a, it's a this for that. I'm saying, sorry, you folks fielded a bunch of players who are ineligible. Those wins, we're taking them back. That's the place where we have gotten, at least in my ex nine years of experience, the largest amount of shouting and screaming and yelling from university presidents. And I don't know whether they're just trying to satisfy the, the yelling folks back at the ranch or whatever, but my point is if folks really are interested in sort of righting the wrong of winning games because you won while you were cheating, vacation is, seems to me a logical thing to do, and that's where we've gotten a serious pushback and then our appeals committee, uh, God bless them, has um, given a lot of relief in that area, and we're a little sore about that, I'd say. Um, one final point, and then I'll go to Mike because I'd, I hope Mike will speak to this. We're having a good debate on the committee about whether cooperation should count. In other words, should the Committee on Infractions weigh the cooperation of the institution in considering penalties? 
when I got my draft notice and responded to Uncle Sam, I didn't expect anybody to give me a parade or an applause. I just did what I was supposed to do. I think we feel that way a lot about cooperation. That is, we expect cooperation, not just we. we not, we're not high and mighty. It's just that's the drill. I mean, it ought to be that way. It really ought to be that way. Um, on the other hand, um, if you start with that as a base expectation, um, you shouldn't expect the parade. You shouldn't expect a lot of applause. There's a good discussion going on in the Committee on Infractions about how much cooperation should count, and even an idea that we should affirmatively state that cooperation doesn't count. I completely disagree with that idea. I think, I think if you do not give university presidents some credit, and we can have a big discussion about what that means, for the idea of what cooperating with the NCAA gives you, I think they have nothing to take home when they go back and speak to their alums and their board and whatever. I think it is, it's a touch game how much you want to weigh cooperation. We get too many university presidents who overplay it. They come in and they say, we cooperated, give us a goodie. Well, my, action, my reaction is, you cooperated, that was a duty. There's no goodie, but at least there's got to be some discussion in it. There's got to be some weighing of it. There should never be an affirmative statement that a cooperation uh, doesn't count because uh, if you say the cooperation doesn't count, I think you'll make Mike Glazier's job a whole lot more difficult. I think you'll make the university president's job a whole lot more difficult. And I think most lawyers involved in the process would then go to the idea that if cooperation doesn't count, I'm going to handle this just like civil litigation. That is, when the investigators come to campus, we'll ask, we'll answer your questions, but we won't give you anything up. We won't give up anything. So with that, I'll turn it to Mike. Well, I'd like to thank the Knight Commission for offer, offering me the opportunity to share my views on NCA enforcement and penalties. I'd also like to thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to be in a ballroom here today with Joe and Gene and sit on the same side of the room with them for a change. <laughs> <laughs> I think a couple of you may have been in, the, in that hearing room, uh, and you know how unpleasant it is to appear before the Infractions Committee. Uh, I'd also like to note, before I really get into the the body of my remarks, as Gene alluded to it, he and Joe are finishing their third term as members of the Committee on Infractions. And what that means is that they have given up uh, essentially nine years of their lives as volunteers to serve on that committee. Um, at least six weekends a year uh, as volunteers to sit in a room like this with no windows and listen to schools come before them and plead their cases. And uh, to both of you, I want to thank you personally for your, your service. Um, my entire professional career has been focused on the regulatory area of, of um, college athletics. For the first seven years immediately following law school, I served on the NCAA enforcement staff and uh, investigated infractions cases, charged member institutions and individuals with rule violations where we thought appropriate, and then presented those cases before the NCA Committee on Infractions. Um, since 1986, for the past 22 years, uh, my practice has focused focused almost exclusively on the representation of universities in NCA infractions matters. So I feel like I have a, about 30 years of very intimate experience on the subject that you've chosen to, um, to consider today. I'm well aware of the call being made in some quarters for stiffening of penalties in major infractions cases. I think that call is understandable, but advisable only in part, I believe. And let me explain. 
First, it needs to be recognized, as Gene alluded to, that the category of major infractions cases encompasses far more than cases such as the Baylor extra benefit case or the Minnesota academic fraud case. Uh, those cases are at the extreme end of the spectrum, and because of that, they attract the most attention. But in fact, the more common major infractions case handled by the committee is a case such as one in which the student athletes figured out a way to circumvent the, the uh, textbook distribution policy uh, for scholarship athletes and obtain some, some additional textbooks for their, uh, their friends. Um, or a case in where well-intentioned but perhaps underprepared academic officials have miscertified student athletes' eligibility resulting in ineligible competition. Um, in preparation for this meeting, our staff performed a, what I consider to be a fairly unscientific but nonetheless uh, a very thorough review of 61 reported major infractions cases since January of 2003. That's essentially the past five years. Uh, the results of that review reveal what I suggest are two very significant factors, perhaps guiding factors, if you will, for your consideration as you reflect on recommendations regarding penalties. Of the 61 reported major cases, 41 involved at least one major issue that was discovered, self-investigated, and self-reported by the involved institution. That is approximately 67% of the total number of infractions cases processed in the past five years. Now, of those 41 major infractions cases in which a major violation was self-reported by the institution, and we believe, and again, this is not an objective, but a subjective assessment, we believe that approximately 30 of those cases would not have or at least were unlikely to have been discovered by the enforcement staff but for the institution self-reporting. Now what these numbers tell me is that one very important but often overlooked component of the NCA's enforcement program, that of self-policing and self-reporting, that component is working today. So as these discussions of ratcheting up penalties proceed, I ask that, that we all consider whether a stiffening of penalties might in fact work against the current positive trend of self-reporting. Unlike some, I in fact believe that institutions and leaders of those institutions who have embraced the self-regulatory concept of self-reporting should be rewarded in some fashion. Now I'm not suggesting that no penalties be applied in self-reported cases, but I am suggesting that self-reporting be acknowledged more than it has in recent years, both in terms of the committee's public comments and in terms of mitigation of penalties. Now, I know some will argue that self-reporting and cooperating with the process are membership obligations and that no credit is due simply for doing what you're supposed to do. But reality, in my mind, and in my world, is that not everyone self-reports. And more times than not, those who do not self-report do not get caught. Now, we can stiffen the penalties and add all the investigators the NCA might want, but the majority of the cases the Committee on Infractions will handle and will continue to handle will continue to be the result of self-reporting. 
I believe that the only way to further encourage self-reporting and further level the competitive arena is to publicly support those presidents and chancellors who opt to expose their own institutions to the process. If instead we decide to whack the self-reporters harder, some will conclude that it is not worth it and the enforcement program will move backward, not forward. Now the second significant factor we considered in our review of major infractions over the past five years is a factor that I refer to the case of the bad actors. These are the cases in which either a coach, a booster, or an institutional official knowingly and willfully circumvented NCA legislation intending to gain a competitive advantage. Now our review of those same 61 major infractions cases over the past five years or so revealed that approximately 50 or 85 percent of the major, of at least one of the major violations found in those major cases resulted primarily from the actions of a bad actor. Now where this is a case, I believe that presidents and chancellors and athletics directors, at least those I have represented, would wholeheartedly support the stiffening of penalties, but would tell you that the stiffening of penalties should be directed primarily at the bad actors. In other words, limit further via the show cause provision the bad actors' continued involvement in college athletics, whether it be at, at that institution or at another institution. But where a campus leader responsible for control over athletics discovers a bad actor and then takes meaningful disciplinary action in his or her own, or on his or her own, such action again should count for something when penalties are imposed on that person's institution. My bottom line is that a change in penalties being imposed is needed, but the change should not be one directional. Get tougher on bad actors, but at the same time be more supportive of those who join the enforcement staff in exposing violations and removing bad actors. I look forward to our discussions on this subject. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank all four of you for uh, your presentations. Uh, obviously, uh, the core uh, value of the Knight Commission or, or is uh, for our institutions to run their programs with integrity. And uh, the uh, one plus three model is really based upon that. And so the idea of uh, dealing with those situations uh, in which uh, violations have occurred and how they should be viewed is uh, certainly within that purview. So any questions for these four? Who would like to ask the first question, I should say? Uh, since that's the way it usually goes. Anybody want to lead off? All right, I will. Uh, <laughs> if you uh, were to uh, take, and Gene particularly related to you, if you were to take the research that didn't show wins and losses, uh, just based upon your experience, what are you? What do you have reported to you as the uh, effect? of receiving a major penalty on institutions that have that you've heard back from and then Mike I'd like you to report that too since uh, you deal with these institutions I think that one thing that gets lost is the, the individual experience of institutions and uh, let me just speak for my own I mean when a few years back we received a two-year postseason ban um, that is a bomb, you know. I mean, in that, and it has a huge impact on um, on the institution. Um, 
I have always thought that, um, and this, I guess, in my other world of being, or my first world, and that is being a law professor, I've done a, a fair amount of work with the Federal Trade Commission and the SEC in litigation, and I've always thought that um, the regulators always think they have a bigger impact than they actually do. I think there's deterrence always up to a point, but I think there's a certain sector of any economy, whether it's in sale of securities or in advertising or consumer credit or whatever, who are going to do what they're going to do just more or less no matter what, no matter who's around. So I, I've always, um, and I remember having this discussion with David Price, he, uh, who's the head of the enforcement process in the NCAA. He got really alarmed one time. We had finished a press conference, and we were just talking sort of among us uh, boys, I guess you'd say, in quotes. And, and I said, David, I really question how much effect, deterrent effect these penalties really have. And he got really alarmed by that. He was worried that um, it would have a negative impact on the, uh, the sort of the psyche of his group and whatever. I, I just think it's a fact of life. I mean, I think it's a fact of life in any regulatory environment that uh, the regulator and the people who hand down penalties have some impact. But there are many people unaffected by it, and particularly as the money in college athletics continues to grow and grow and grow, and salaries and this, what's at stake, um, I, I've always had, let me put it this way, I've always had a healthy respect, uh, or I think objective, on how much deterrent effect we really have. And then in the, other, in the back of my mind, I, th I have real doubts about whether we have much effect at all. Uh, university presidents come into our hearings and they say, I'm sorry we're here, I'm embarrassed to be here, we will never be back again. That third statement is, comes back to haunt many people. Mike? <laughs> yeah. No, I, th I think I come from about the same perspective that Gene does. I've always felt that in college athletics, when it comes down to the individuals who knowingly and willfully violate the rules, that uh, they're just reflective of our society in general. I think our society, there's a certain percentage who no matter what rules they're presented with, whether it's in banking or any other regulated area, they're going to they're find a way down the back alley. Um, College athletics is no different than that, I believe. Uh, we've got a certain percentage of people who enter the profession that regardless of what the rules are that we give them, they're going to look for a way to get around them. Uh, the answer to that is stronger enforcement, I believe. But with regard to the process itself, I think as you, as you work or are part of a, an institution that goes through a major infractions case that's highly publicized, the most significant penalty that that institution feels is the, the public commentary and the, the pressure that's on that institution from the time the, the violations are exposed until they get to the, to the hearing itself. Uh, that's, it's a terribly stressful uh, process for institutions because of the public uh, attention. Uh, it's difficult for the, the campus leaders, and uh, most of those people tell me that they can't wait to get to the hearing because that's really the part where, where now it's over, the penalty gets announced finally, and then they go about serving that penalty. But the tough part of it is living through the case up to that point. You mentioned some uh, problems, Joe, uh, that uh, sort of bad actors in terms of those who are on the outside. But in the review of penalties, is there any consideration for more action being directed towards student athletes that are are involved with some of the penalties that either in high school, junior college, or so on that are induced to come to institutions in any direct way? 
the the committee that deals with conduct of athletes and prospects is right now in the process is student athlete reinstatement, and I believe there was a time in the um, structure of the NCAA where that committee was under in the enforcement wing, and so there may that may have meant. Uh, that the decisions that were being made with regard to student athlete reinstatement issues were more consistent with the philosophy of enforcement and infractions. That committee is now in membership services. When we're at a hearing, one of the first questions that's asked at the beginning of the hearing is if eligibility issues for student athletes are all resolved. There have been occasions when the committee has considered unethical conduct by a student athlete, but then the decision with regard to what will occur uh, ends up going back to the other committee. If I might just, I wanted to comment on the a couple of things that both Jean and Mike said. Uh, Jean said that there's an ongoing discussion on the committee with regard to cooperation, and I'm on, and, and he and I agree about 98% of the way, but we start splitting on how to handle the issue, and I'm on the other side of it. And I'd like to just put a couple of other considerations on the table just to indicate the complexity of trying to figure out how to deal with it. One of them is the NCAA members are the institutions, not the coaches who work for schools, but the institutions themselves. If we went to a process such as Mike was describing where you hit the non-members harder and then pat on the back the members for doing what the bylaws require, that is cooperating, um, I, think, I think there is at least a potential of more litigation risk for the uh, NCAA. Uh, currently in litigation, uh, there are instances in which coaches claim that enforcement is in bed with the institution and infractions is in bed with the two of them, and the person who's hung out to dry is the coach because you say, I fired the coach and she was the one who did all this, and then you get a positive benefit out of it. Uh, the other thing is deterrence is, is pretty hard. You know, over in the, I teach in the criminal area also, and it's and there, there are lots of people who write and research on deterrence and deterrent effect and how you know. There's a body of research that says the rules themselves have some impact. If you have a rule that says you must put on a seatbelt, there are people who will put on a seatbelt because of that rule uh, that would not have used a seatbelt in the absence of the rule. So that aspect of deterrence, and that is the rules of rule-abiding behavior, of a large number of institutions is not something that you calculate by infractions cases because we see the outliers. We see the ones who are not sufficiently uh, influenced by the rules. The other complication that I see is lighter penalties. Mike says, well, lighter penalties will encourage schools to come forward and self-report. Lighter penalties may encourage others who right now are following rules to say, well, hey, now the cost-benefit analysis looks better. I might as well give it a whirl. You just, it's a very complicated area to try to figure out. And with any rule, there are, you know, you write a rule having to try to examine and predict consequences, positive and negative, and then you strike a balance somewhere knowing that there are going to be exceptions either way that you may try to take care of by by waivers or exceptions to the exceptions to the rules, but no rule is a perfect rule, and certainly not while you know none of us are perfect actors. Question, Janet. 
uh, Mike, if your anecdotal uh, information is correct, and two-thirds of the major cases are self-reported. Now, I have to ask the question, what does the enforcement operation of the NCAA do? Um, I don't even know how many people are on that group. I don't know. I know what their charge is, if you will, but if there's all this self-reporting going on, which actually is good, uh, I just wonder if, if it's overstaffed or are they there to investigate something after it has been self-reported? Two things. I, I want to make sure that my, my statistics weren't misunderstood. Of the 61 cases, what I wanted to relate is that there is at least one of the major violations that are comprised of those cases. Some of those cases might, compri might be comprised of multiple major violations, but at least in one of them, one of those in 41 of the 61 cases was completely self-reported by the institution. Uh, so the enforcement staff, uh, they still discover a, a fairly significant number of um, major violations, but certainly not all. And uh, so that's... And just one other question on this business, and anyone can answer it, of uh, the enforcement staff uh, uncovering, if you will, something that is a major violation or even a minor violation. Does that typically come from another school reporting that my competitor is doing X? In other words, is it sort of a competitive reporting, so to speak? I think more often than not, uh, it's uh, a tip from another coach that was involved in the recruitment or, or something along those lines. A dis disgruntled employee who was terminated, various things like that, uh, different sources of it. Anita? I think sometimes the media helps with this. There's a case that was pretended, you may not be able to speak on this, uh, in a universe where there was a parent who negotiated with a coach that if his son was accepted, this other very desirable athlete would, would go. Sounds like ethics 101 to begin with. And then it turns out that the other athlete did go, his son got in, um, athlete um, A then leaves on the one year in and out rule and leaves behind a potential problem for the school. Now, I think that was the media got involved with that pretty fast. I don't know that anyone else did that one. I think you're right. The media also uh, uh, uncovers cases. You know, the, I referenced the University of Minnesota academic fraud case uh, that was uh, revealed by the media in Minneapolis. So uh, they do play a significant role in it as well. And, and I, this is just a guess on my part. But I would think that the um, that at least half of the major violations that are out there probably they get processed through the NCAA are either self-reported or are brought to the attention of the enforcement staff by someone you know other than the enforcement staff going out and getting a you know a, an internal lead on something and and developing it. They they really need the help of uh, of institutions number one and then external sources number two. Usually, too, when there's something, even if it's self-reported, that uh, is brought to their attention, uh, there are oftentimes other things that accompany it. And so it may be, an institution may report one violation, but in the follow-up by the NCAA staff, along the line Janet was saying, two or three others are probably going to be discovered. Because I think in most programs, they're going to be opportunity, they're going to be errors. It's simply a matter of whether or not they're secondary or major. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, I'm interested in uh, 
the uh, if you have any uh, data, I'm sure you do on the number of major penalties <coughs> uh, given by the infraction committee. What percentage of those actually get appealed, and what percent of the appeals? Um, result in some major reduction from what the infraction committee initially recommended? We have two coordinators of appeals who, to, who do the appeals and have those data. I'm trying to recall, but you're going to have to take this with uh, Amy or someone may want to get back to someone on staff. Uh, but I think currently maybe a coach or an institution, it's not always the it's not always both. In maybe 60% uh, of the cases, two-thirds maybe appeal. The appeals committee almost never reverses a finding of the committee. And of course, they're obliged to give substantial weight to findings. Uh, but the appeals committee adjusts penalties in maybe half to two-thirds of the cases that are appealed to them right now. A half to two-thirds. I think that's right. One, the uh, Dean uh, Jerry Parkinson from the University of Wyoming is one of the members of the committee who handles the, the appeals. And just we had a meeting this weekend, and um, he noted that in, when it comes to relief, as Joe pointed out, that where the relief is most commonly given is in penalties. So what's interesting to me, and in, interesting as in not so funny, I guess, is sometimes we get accused of um, not being tough enough. But the recent history in the last few years is that the Appeals Committee has been giving relief to institutions on penalties. So until we get a better, and there's a process that's ongoing now in sort of creating maybe a, a better dialogue uh, between those two groups on how they view penalties, um, uh, until we get a better dialogue and I would say better outcome there, um, I, I feel like sometimes we we're being told to load up and get tougher. Miles Brand gets, says get tougher. And then the schools most commonly get relief on penalties. It's a puzzling notion. I would add to that that I think there is, and uh, I, my impression, let me just speak for me, is that to some extent the two committees are not on the same page with regard to a philosophy uh, in imposing penalties right now. And that has to be fixed. And one of the reasons why I appointed the subcommittee to look at penalties generally was to get a handle on what we're doing, what we think are the principles involved in imposing penalties, uh, what are the kinds of guidelines that we're operating under, uh, and uh, then where is it that... Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. For more information on the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, visit www.knightcommission.org.